Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Thank you very much. You may be seated. It's good to see you, friends. Thank you for being with us this morning. As we start this morning, I want you to just think for a moment about some of your own tendencies and your own proclivities. So for you, when you're having a good day, what does that look like? Do you wear it on your face? Are you the person who always walks around smiling? Do you just feel that joy of what's going? Is there someone that you text or people that you go home to, a friend, a spouse, parents, that that you just want to involve and tell them everything about what just happened in your day? Or then on the other side of that, like when you're having a really hard day, what does that look like for you? Again, are you the one who goes and runs and tells a parent, a spouse, a friend, texting them? Maybe you spend more time talking to them about what happened than what actually happened. Are you the kind of person that maybe withdraws and shuts down a little bit, gets quiet and and introspective? You know, it's interesting how all of us, when we think about that, we can picture ourselves or picture others that we know and love and how, how we all respond to both joy and suffering and difficulties. And sometimes how those are the same in our life. Or sometimes they're very different in how they express themselves. You know, as we come to the conclusion of James's letter, uh, James, James wants to wrap up and he, he makes some comments here about prayer. But for James, it's not just about prayer, it's larger than that. Let's look at what James says here in the first section of his conclusion. James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praises. If, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. It's interesting, even though James has been talking throughout this letter about engaging God, talking to God, this is the first place where he uses the word prayer. And it's used in almost every single verse in this section. So it's clear that James wants us to think about prayer here. And at a high level, what he wants us to think about is this first couple statements. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. James wants to take the totality of our experience from really good to really bad and point us again to God. And remember what James said way back in James 1.5 when we first started. He said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. We talked about this idea that God gives generously is this idea that he gives singularly in accordance with his own very nature. And that God will will be consistently loving and good to us, giving us exactly what we need in every situation in our lives. And James has been encouraging us throughout his letter that even when we're not sure what's going on, and even particularly when the plans we might have don't look like what's occurring in our life, we should go back to God and be reminded that he is sovereign and he is caring for us in his goodwill and good timing. 
You know, what James says here about prayer is really similar to what Jesus says about prayer, which shouldn't surprise us. We've seen again and again how James has the words of Jesus ringing in his ears. And it's a lot like what Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's this idea that our heart should be focused first and foremost on God, who he is, what he's doing, how he's working around us and even in us and in our lives. What James wants is that as we come to these sad and suffering, difficult moments in our lives, that we would turn to God, much like the psalmist, and say things like this, Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord, Yahweh, delivers him out of them all. Or Psalm 119 that says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Uh, That we would look and thank God for where we're at. But then similarly, on the good side, when things are going wonderful, that we would praise God. Again, much like the psalmist, like David does in Psalm 145, where he says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Both of those attitudes are echoing what James has been asking us to do throughout his letter. And I pray that as we come to this section this morning, many of us would be able to say now, I have been very encouraged by James. And he's reminding me that even in my suffering, even when things are hard, that God is still good and he is for me. He has good things for me, even in the midst of the suffering. And praise God that we can all be encouraged and grown through his word. Yet if you notice, James doesn't stop there. Uh, the prayer was a very common way to, to end a letter, to encourage prayer for themselves, to prayers for others. Yet James seems to get to this point, and it seems to spark an idea for James. In fact, it maybe seems like it sparks a caveat for James, as though he realized, oh, there's one more thing I wanted to tell you. It starts here with this statement. Is anyone among you sick? You know, it may look like it's a third question in a row, but it really, it seems to be unpacking that first statement of, is anyone suffering? He's thinking of very particular ways you might be suffering and might you be sick? You know, that, that word for sick is just weakness. Uh, we see it show up in scripture for, for spiritual weakness, weakness for, for physical weakness. When it's spiritual, it's usually added on with a modifier, like weakness of faith or weakness of conscience. And so in this case, it would seem that James is thinking particularly about physical weakness. That's why most translations say sickness. And that shouldn't surprise us. As we're sitting here this morning, there are undoubtedly many people here who are suffering through physical ailment. In fact, I'd I'd probably be willing to bet that there's no gathering across this entire country, this entire world that doesn't have someone in the gathering that is dealing with something physically in their life and how their body is breaking down. You know, at this point, James's readers and us, we should be accepting of that idea that there will be suffering. James started it this way in James 1, 2. He said, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we, we have here in, in James 5, his conclusion, where he's encouraging us towards prayer, but he, he doesn't say that we need to merely accept suffering. Uh, James seems to say that there is, is another role that others, and particularly prayers of others and our leaders, has to play in the moment of our suffering. And this is where James continues on in James 5. He says this, Is anyone among you sick? Then, it's that kind of logic, if, then, 
Then let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Kind of a second thought now. And the prayer of faith, one, will save the one who is sick, two, and the Lord will raise him up, three, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Let's be honest here. There's a lot to unpack in this passage. You know, it's, it's like James is wrapping everything up. And, and here in James's mind are just kind of, you know, these are no big deals. These are things you guys should all be doing. You don't have to think about this much. And for us in our culture and even our ways of thinking, this is somewhat foreign to us. So we have to stop and kind of delve into it a little deeper to say, James, what are you really asking us to do here? So we start with this first section. Is anyone among you sick? Then let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Whatever kind of weakness, sickness, physical ailment this is, it seems to be really great. James seems to be trying to cover the gamut from small to large by saying, in this case, the elders have to be called to actually come to the people. The person can't get to him. You should be thinking about like the paralytic that the people lowered through the roof that Jesus might actually have a chance to heal him. And when it says pray over, that's probably not our colloquial way of saying, like, I'm going to cover you verbally with prayer. It's likely literally that they're standing over this person because they're that sick. They can't even sit up to enjoin in what's going on in this moment. And the first thing that James says in this section is that we should bring others into our suffering. Bring others into our suffering to not go through it alone. Like I mentioned at at the beginning, some of us have this proclivity. I'm one of those that kind of want to close down, not want to let others in when things aren't going great or well, to withdraw and to try to ballot on our own. And James starts with, in general, the idea just you need to bring people into this. I mean, when we think about people like Job, even though his his friends gave really bad counsel, at the very beginning, they actually just hear of it and show up and sit with him for a while. Just enter in. Our Lord Jesus, as he's going to the cross and the weight of that moment is beginning to bear down on him, he takes the disciples with him to Gethsemane and asks them to enjoin in prayer with him, to just be with him as he's about to go through this moment. It's interesting, though, that James just doesn't say anyone. He encourages us to bring in our elders. And so often when we come to choosing who to bring in, we pick one of two options, no one or just someone who really, really knows me because I don't want to have to be challenged and get outside of that little sphere right? No one, like I said, oftentimes because we're prideful, we might feel shame. Uh, we, we might be, be worried about the burden that that would put on someone else to come into our lives that way. And then oftentimes with leaders and elders, it's like, I don't, I don't, do I really want to bring them into what's going on in my life? It, that seems hard to do to share with them. But wouldn't it be true that if God wanted to work in our lives, Work in our lives, whether it's through just care and counsel or even maybe miraculous ways, wouldn't his mature godly leaders be one of the ways that he would want to do that for you, in your life, through you? You Have you ever considered how your struggle to invite others into your suffering, into your difficulties, might mean that you're missing out on many graces that the Lord has for you? Whether it's from pride or embarrassment or whatnot, have you considered that you may be missing one of God's graces in your difficulties, especially physical difficulties, by not calling others in, and specifically by not asking for leaders to enter in to help you? And then we have this second statement here in this passage, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. We all know that first part. We're like, great, I totally understand praying for someone else, but anointing with oil? Like we probably have in our mind this idea of like the woman coming to Jesus' feet and pouring out all her perfume and taking her hair and wiping it down, or, or the priest where it was poured over their entire head. 
Like, what would that look like? I mean, we have another passage in Mark where it talks about the disciples doing this. It says, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. That's not much more helpful. (laughs) It's just telling us that they did it. So when we go to scripture, we think about this word anointing, we can kind of come up with several questions. First one is, could it be that we're talking about something medicinal, something healing? And all the tincture and aromatherapy and essential oil moms go, amen, the power of oil, (laughs) right? No, we know that. We, we know that there are salves and different things in our lives that are medicinal, that could help us. And we see it used sometimes that way in scripture. You know, could it be that there's an actual power of oil, power in it? Uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Western Catholic Church have talked about oil at times like that throughout their history. In fact, even today, the Catholic Church has what's called the rite of extreme unction, the idea that as someone's dying on their deathbed, that a priest will come in and anoint them with oil, that they might have their sins uh, forgiven as they enter in to the next life with the Lord. You know, both of those could have pieces in here, but, but by far and away, when we look at the idea of anointing in Scripture, it's this idea of someone being set apart for the service of God or being set apart to have God care for them specifically. We see that throughout Scripture. And that's most likely the idea of anointing here, that they they might be setting this person aside for a very special moment, for this idea that God would care for them in a very particular way right then and there. And it also has a pastoral element. I mean, think of Jesus who spat in the mud and put it on the blind man's eye. He didn't need to do that. He did it as part of identifying, entering in with this person's suffering. We see it as Jesus lays hands on people and connects with them very physically to say that he is there with them. You up to this point, most of you are probably somewhat easily convinced that we could try something like this, even if it's a little odd to our sensibilities, right? It, It pushes against our pride and our individualism that says, I don't want to bring people in. But you can imagine how how having others pray for you, but even particularly your elders pray for you would be a very encouraging thing. And then to have someone somehow physically engage with you, to put oil on you and put their hands on you, to say, I'm with you in this suffering would be an incredible encouragement in our life. Yet I think so many Christians have thrown out so much of the good in this passage because of some of the challenging things that are said next here, right? And the prayer of faith will, one, will save the one who is sick, two, the Lord will raise him up, and three, if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. I mean, the easiest read of this section is that James believed there is some kind of prayer, he calls it the prayer of faith, that will result in the sick person being healed, God literally raising them up, and any sins they have committed being forgiven. So often I see two knee-jerk reactions to this section. On the one hand, you get people who go, well, you know what, I really don't have to worry about this because I don't believe that the miraculous gifts are for today. I believe that those were at the apostolic era, maybe for mission churches every now and then, but we don't see stuff like this happen today, so this really isn't a problem for me. The other knee-jerk reaction is people who run to this passage and say, see, there's the problem. If you just had more faith, if the person praying for you had more faith, then you would be healed. If you just tried harder, believed more, your sicknesses would all be gone. And you should all picture me earlier this week preparing for this sermon, putting on my bomb-diffusing outfit, getting my little face shield on, and texting the elders real quick and saying, do you realize what's coming up in this passage? Are you ready to go down this road with me? (laughs) 
you know, I say that in jest, but we all know that there's things like this that can cause real fires and issues in a church, oftentimes when it probably shouldn't. You know, I, I want to share with you that our elders are excited to go into things like this. In fact, that's part of what they love, what I love about expository preaching, is it, it sends us into passages like this where we need to look at it and talk about it. And I'm even more happy that we were all on the same page. That makes it much more easier to preach today, <laughs> even though I still think John Mitchell maybe should have done it. Uh, question number one, do we believe in miraculous healings? And that's the first overarching position that would just kind of sweep this away and say, I'm not going to have to deal with it. And we would say, looking at this, that just by the way James talks, in fact, we would say all the other situations where we see talks about miraculous gifts, that there's no language that seems to, to bind it to a particular time and place. The expectation seems to be that anyone could ask and this could happen. James isn't limiting it. You know, there seems to be no good case for expecting any of the gifts of the Spirit to have ceased. Now, to be clear, we don't mean to say that we expect to see all the gifts at all times and all places and all ways in every church expressed all the time, every Sunday, in every way. We're also not trying to say that we believe that there is one gift or a certain kind of gift that all Christians have to have to show that they're a Christian, right? The shorthand phrase for what the elders and myself would say is that we are not cessationists, meaning we don't believe that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit have ceased. Rather, we are continuationists, meaning that we believe they continue on. Two big words for the day that we all get to have, that the Spirit is still moving in miraculous ways today. And we look at this passage and we say, you know what? It could make good sense then that James is actually asking us to ask God for the miraculous, that something might happen here. But then the second overarching position that kind of can push away some of the immediacy of this verse is these words to save and to raise up. I mean, when we look throughout Scripture, uh, this idea of to save and raise up seems to have this idea of this future uh, expectation of the new heavens and the new earth. And so people would say, what, what James is really saying here is just remind people that it won't always be this way. That someday in the new heavens and the new earth, they will be healed. They will walk fully with the Lord their God face to face, and there will be no more issues. I mean, undoubtedly, that is part of what James is saying here. The usage pushes you that way. But, but also, James seems to have an immediacy to what he thinks is going to happen here. We would rob him of the reality of what he's asking people to do if we said it wasn't more than that. And in fact, we can believe that because that's what all miracles, big or small, are. They're all pointing to that future reality. Here's your third big word for the day, inaugurated eschatology. All Christians believe that. Inaugurated meaning started, eschatology meaning the end times. All Christians believe in it because here's the reality. God could have come and died on the cross to save us and then said, guess what? Someday when you die, I'll change you, perfect you. Now you can be in relationship with me. Could have done that, but he didn't. He sent the deposit of the Holy Spirit that we have access to his very presence today. The end being inserted now into today, that we get to walk with him. All Christians believe that in one way, shape, or form. You know, and James is undoubtedly pointing us forward to that beautiful, glorious future when it will be true for all people in all ways, completely. But he also seems to be saying that we should ask God for this moment where, where that future reality breaks into our momentary reality today, where we get to see it in very real ways, a visible reversal of what would be true in sin and brokenness, and rather see the truth of what will happen for us in mercy and grace in Jesus Christ in the future. 
You know, it's as if James has done such a good job of reminding us that, that we should walk with our suffering, trust the Lord in what he's doing, and he gets here to prayer and he says, oh, but that may not always be the case. It's okay to ask. It's okay to go before the Lord and say, maybe suffering is not what he wants for you in this moment. <clears throat> so if you're with me so far, if you're okay that the miraculous gifts have not ceased and that the way that James is talking here is inviting us in to ask for God to do what he might do there. And that if you can believe that our prayers over sickness is both acknowledging that that will be true someday in a very real way in the future, yet we're asking God to break through in this moment, your question might be, well, then how, how, how would that happen? And that drives us to this phrase, the prayer of faith. The first question we have to ask here is who's making this prayer? I mean, it seems clear in the context that it would be the elders. Obviously, you would think that the person themselves would have prayed for their own healing already. And and part of it is that now the elders have entered in with them and are praying for them. The second question then is regarding faithfulness. Is this the faithfulness of the elders praying that will make things happen? Is it the faithfulness of the person who's being prayed for that will make things happen? I think when we make that dichotomy is where we make the biggest problem because we forget the biggest person in the room, God. This is not about the faithfulness of either person. It's about the faithfulness of God. I love how this one scholar said this. The faith exercised in prayer is faith in the God who sovereignly accomplishes his will. When we pray, our faith recognizes explicitly or implicitly, either by words or not, the overruling providential purposes of God. We may at times be given insight into that will, enabling us to pray with absolute confidence in God's plan to answer as we ask, like the Old Testament prophets. But surely these cases are rare, more rare even than our subjective emotional desires would lead us to suspect. A prayer for healing then must usually be qualified by a recognition that God's will in the matter is supreme. And it is clear in the New Testament that God does not always will to heal the believer. You know, what James means by this idea of prayer and faith is trusting that we can actually ask in the moment that God would remove a suffering, a physical issue, a spiritual issue, and that if it aligns with his will in that moment, that he might be pleased to use that prayer, those people, that instance to break through and show us a glimpse of what is sure for us in the future. And we can't know that it will always happen, but we can step through in prayer to see if it's what God wants to do. And this is what Paul did. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that he prayed three times that this thing called the thorn in the flesh would leave him. We we can step in like Paul and ask that God would take away our sickness, our weakness. And it will happen sometimes, maybe rarely in your experience, maybe often in your experience. But we can ask and it can happen. Other times it won't happen, just like Paul. And we see it often, also in Paul, where Paul says in Titus that he, he left Trophimus behind because Trophimus was sick. I mean, if Paul, of all people, knew a formula, a way to make this work, you don't think he would have healed Trophimus to bring him along on the journey with him so he could keep going? You don't think Paul would have done whatever was necessary to get rid of this thorn in the flesh so that he wouldn't have to walk with it? And this is, there's a tension that we have to live in in this passage, much like when we come to tensions like this in John 14, 14, where Jesus says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Or as James said earlier in James 1, 5 through 8, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously, singularly to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. 
For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Asking in faith does not mean that we can make it happen. It means that we are trusting God to give what is needed in that moment. You know, it's that we want to be in accordance with God's good, singular, loving desire for us at every moment. And sometimes he wants to heal us through these means with others, particularly elders praying over us and his people. And this is not about your faithfulness. It's not about the faithfulness of those who pray for you. You do not need to pray again and again, though we do see Paul finding three times in his life asking God to deal with this in him. You do not need to find more godly or specially gifted people. That would be you trying to come back to some sort of law to say, I can determine what is right for me and I can make it happen, even when that may not be the best thing that God has for you. Remember what what Paul says God said to him in that moment? God said this, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. For Paul, it was one of those moments like James has been sharing One of those moments where Paul undoubtedly had countless moments where he healed other people. And this was a moment where the Lord said, nope, in this one, I'm going to show you my strength through your weakness. It's exactly what James has been encouraging us. You know, in several ways through this passage, our modern sensibilities have been assaulted. And then James drops one more here still. And James goes on and he says this, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And then he even adds on another therefore that goes along with this that says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Can our sins affect us physically? Can our sins make us sick? When you think about it, at the core, sin is marring the very image-bearer quality that we are of God. And we, we all can usually admit that, that things like the destruction of our genes, the ways that that plays out in life can bring about deformities, illnesses, sicknesses. So why would we not be able to go down the road that even our temporary sins, unrepented in our life, might affect our well-being? We're whole people, mind, body, and soul. You cannot separate them. That's the, that's the crucial sadness of death, is that they're ripped apart to only to be rejoined. We have places like 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Paul has a category where he can assuredly say, to certain people that they have sinned in the way that they're taking communion and because of that they are sick and that some of them have even died physically because of that sin. It seems to be what Paul has in mind a little bit earlier in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says this, you are to deliver this man, talking about the man who is sleeping with his father's wife, <clears throat> for dis- to Satan for destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Uh, this reality that by removing this person from fellowship that Satan would have more access to buffet their flesh to hurt them in such ways that they might then come back in repentance and be found righteous before the Lord in the final day. In fact, some scholars would even say that when Jesus is healing the paralytic in Mark 2, 12, 2, 2 1 through 12, and he starts with your sins are forgiven, it might be exactly this kind of scenario, that Jesus knew that it was a sin in this person's life that was making them paralyzed. So he starts with the first issue, which is I'm forgiving you. And then he moves on to the second issue, which is now be healed and rise and walk. 
You know, we seem to have multiple places in Scripture that point to illness being connected to sin. And yet we have to hold those intentions with entire books like Job that make it incredibly obvious that there is no connection of what is happening to Job with anything that Job did, any sin in his life. We have to hold it in tension with places like John 9, 2 through 3, where the disciples try to ask Jesus, is it this man's sin or his parents' sin that he's blind? And Jesus says, neither. It's so that you might see the glory of the Lord before you. I do not want anyone to miss this in this section that James does not connect this directly. James says, if. He says, if there is a possibility that your sin may be affecting your physical well-being. It's not always connected, but it can be. And James believes, Paul believes, and Jesus seems to demonstrate that that connection can be real and that we shouldn't see it as a surprise. That helps us begin to move into the, the main thrust of what James is saying. James has been trying to show us throughout his letter that suffering can be a part of what God has for us. But here he wants to remind us that that's not always the only way that God can show his glory and his goodness. He says here that we should ask. We should pray. We should invite others, and particularly the elders. We should confess sin. We believe that miracles can happen. We believe that the promised kingdom of God is surely coming one day, and we do believe that it breaks through in moments when God wants that we could see and be assured of the glory to come one day. And we believe that we often need others to enter into our brokenness, into our suffering with us, and that having the elders do that is a healthy part of our rhythm in our life, that we need to be connected to the body, to be anointed and be a part of what is going on that we might be pastorally cared for. We believe that we should ask that expectantly, even in this moment right now, and to ask if God would heal you and remove a current suffering. We believe that we need to confess our sins to make sure that's not part of the issue of what is going on in our lives. That's why James has this exhortation connected right here. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I mean, imagine if we had, had that rhythm in our lives where we're constantly confessing to one another, constantly asking each other to pray for us, how we might get to the other side in the new heavens and the new earth, and the Lord might unroll the reality of what occurred, and you would see the hundreds, maybe thousands of small little miracles he performed in your life that you just chalked up to the normal everyday occurrences, that that little illness went away when it was really God interceding through just the prayers of others and, and the care of them, when, when your life changed directions and trajectory because of his work in your life, I'll take that any day. This is also why James points us to Elijah, to remind us that God does move in these ways, in small and great ways. So what he says, he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Do you believe that that can happen? People with natures like you and me, sinners before the Lord, could ask, and he might move. I know that there are a lot of deep and even challenging, amazing things that are in this passage, and I or the elders would love to talk to you more if you're, you're wrestling with that and you're wondering how to think about that. Uh, but today is a chance where we get to do something in application that is unique, right? Usually I get to, to preach, someone gets to preach, we get to say, good luck, have a good week, and we wonder if Monday you even remember what occurred. But today, today, in this case, we get to practice what we are asking 
for. We have elders that are going to be at the back of the room, the prayer room, and they would love to pray over you. They would love to ask in this moment if this is one of those points where God might want to enter in and heal you. They are going to anoint you, not pour stuff all over your head, just a little dab on the forehead will do, to show you that they are a part of this with you, that we, the church, care about your suffering, what you're going through, big or small, young or old. And guess what? One of two things is going to happen. You might go back and you might find through the asking of God to take the suffering away that this aligns in his will in this moment through his leaders that he wants you to be free from that. And we can all praise and glorify God together in that. But a second thing is equally good. Whether it happens to everyone or no one or you're the only one who doesn't get healed, the second thing could be that you could find rest. That you could find rest and peace in your suffering. Knowing that in in inviting others in, asking God's elders to be a part of that prayer process for you, confessing sins, that if God still doesn't choose to take that suffering, take that sickness from you, then he's going to give you the strength to continue to walk through it today because that's what he has for you right now. And you can trust in his path. I want to encourage you this morning, if you feel like you would like prayer for yourself if you feel like the Lord is moving on you to ask if there's a suffering, big or small, that the Lord might want to deal with in your life, please, during this next time, don't necessarily take communion with us where we remember what Jesus did that bought us that future reality and we look expectantly towards it. Rather, go back and be prayed over by the elders to see if the Lord might bring that reality in a moment for you in whatever your suffering is. And then trust him and be able to rest, if he doesn't, that he has got a good plan for where you're at today. Would you pray with me? Lord God, what a sweet thing your word is that you both can encourage us one moment on how good you are to walk with us in suffering, to have purposes in it, and then yet say you also might be equally glorified, equally good to us by taking that away in an instant. Lord God, that is the hope we wait for, the hope we're in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye. We are raptured, taken up into a new reality with you, a new heavens, a new earth, and a new body. Lord God, would it please you this morning in your will to heal some people, to take away their suffering right now? And even if it's not, Lord, we can still proclaim and extol how wonderful you are, how good you are to give us rest, that even in our trials and sufferings, you are with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.